Well, hello, podcasters, and welcome to the Wayne's World of the Banking Litigation World, episode 33 of the Banking Litigation Podcast. Party on, Kerry. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, John. And welcome to our guest, Party on Wilkie. Thanks very much for having me. Not at all. And from the Midwest to the Southwest, thank you all, podcasters, for the lovely feedback you've been uh, supplying uh, to us. One podcaster in particular in Gloucestershire has been in touch to say she's been listening to our episodes while spring gardening and making cider. A bucolic image indeed. And one, I think, uh, Wilkie, that's relevant to our first case. I think that's right, John. Well, to start us off, I think we're going to move away from that bucolic image and look at a recent cryptocurrency case called Tulip Trading in Bitcoin, which I think is a pretty perfect name for our springtime theme. Party on. I also love the claimant company's nod to the tulip asset bubble of the Dutch Golden Age. It's an interesting historical lesson to reflect upon in the context of cryptocurrency. The creation of an asset bubble where asset prices deviate from their intrinsic value. Mm. But moving on to the case in hand, the claimant, Tulip Trading, was a Seychelles company that claimed to have $4.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, which it accessed and controlled from a computer and network in the UK. Access to the Bitcoin was facilitated by secure private keys. Not physical keys though, right? Um, One would have to be careful not to throw away one's physical $4.5 billion Bitcoin password keys during a spring clean. That's sound advice, John. Unfortunately for the claimant in the present case, hackers managed to access the claimant's computer and delete these keys, meaning that the claimant lost access to the Bitcoin. Oh dear, not ideal at all. Quite. The claimant argued that the defendants who developed Bitcoin-related software owed the claimant a fiduciary or tortious duty to enable it to re-access the Bitcoin. The question before the court was whether an order permitting service on the defendants out of the jurisdiction should be set aside. And in summary, the High Court found that there was no serious issue to be tried, that both of the claimant's causes of action were unrealistic, and it therefore set aside the order permitting service out of jurisdiction. On the fiduciary duty argument, the claimant argued that the defendants had a positive duty to introduce a software patch that would allow the claimant to regain control of its assets. But the court struggled to see why such a duty should have been imposed in this situation. It was not as if the claimants, as Bitcoin owners, had entrusted their property to a fluctuating and unidentified body of developers of the software. Secondly, the court held that any positive duty in tort of this kind would not be an incremental change in the law. In any event, the loss complained of was purely economic, and so the claimant had to demonstrate the existence of a special relationship, which clearly did not exist on the facts. The case suggests that claims against developers for failing to adequately protect crypto assets will generally be difficult to run. Any financial institution or bank providing crypto asset custody services might want to take this into account. If the asset is compromised, the custodian may not have recourse against a third-party developer. So this is particularly interesting because we appear to be experiencing a spring blossoming moment for the crypto asset industry. I know the Chancellor recently hailed the UK's new role as a global crypto hub on LinkedIn. And I think he received nearly 3,000 reactions, or I don't know if they were all likes or smiley faces, but reactions of some sort. It's excellent news if that comes to pass. We should be seeing more interesting legal decisions on crypto assets in the near future. I hope so. Well, as ever, we have a blog post on this particular case, and you can find a link in the show notes. Now, next up, Kerry, I think um, you've selected the newest development in the ongoing Quinscare saga as our deep dive this month. Over to you. That's right, John. Thank you. And this is an important one. Of course, we're talking about the Court of Appeals decision in Phillips and Barclays. 
But before we spring fully into the action, please can we have a brief reminder of when the Quinscare duty arises? Yes, of course. So the duty, historically at least, has arisen where a bank receives a payment instruction from an authorised signatory of its customer and executes the order in circumstances where there were red flags to suggest that the order was an attempt to misappropriate funds. And the reason I say historically is that the factual circumstances of all previous cases have involved instructions made by an authorised signatory, i.e. an agent acting on behalf of a company. However, the facts of the present case were different. Proceedings were brought by an individual victim of an APP fraud. Hang on a sec, APP fraud? Uh, Yeah, sorry. So an authorised push payment fraud. So this is where a customer is duped into making a payment voluntarily into what they believe to be a genuine beneficiary account. But it's actually an account controlled by a fraudster who then makes off with the cash. It's often instigated through some form of social engineering, such as impersonating the employees of a genuine company. So in this case, Mrs. Phillip was unfortunately deceived by a fraudster to instruct the bank to transfer £700,000 from her account in the belief that she was assisting an investigation by the FCA and the National Crime Agency and that the money would be safe. Uh, Mrs. Phillip brought a claim against the bank on the basis that it had breached its quince care duty. The High Court initially struck out the case on the basis that the quince care duty is limited to situations involving corporate customers, i.e. that the purpose of the duty is to protect a bank's customer from the misappropriation of funds carried out by a trusted agent of that customer who's authorised to withdraw its money from the account. As the case concerned an authorised push payment fraud, so the claimant herself gave authorisation for the payments to be made, there was no agent involved. And so the High Court said this was an attempt to extend the quince care duty beyond its established boundaries. However, the Court of Appeal found, as a point of law, that the quince care duty is not limited to the situation where instructions have been given by an agent or an authorised signatory on behalf of the customer of the bank. And this means that the duty is not limited, as far as the Court of Appeal is concerned, to protecting corporate customers and can, in principle, extend to protecting individuals. But hold fire a second. I mean, this seems to go against the grain of all previous authorities in this. I understood the previous Quince Care authorities, and I'm just repeating back what you've just said to me, Kerry, to have involved instructions made by an authorised signatory acting fraudulently on behalf of a company or a firm. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, John. So in particular, this was the factual scenario in Barclays Bank and Quince Care itself, the original Quince Care case, and Singularis, which is the only case to date in which the duty has been found to have been owed in breach. Um, But the Court of Appeal decided not to focus on the purpose of the Quince Care duty, which was the approach that had been taken in the High Court. Instead, the Court of Appeal focused on the reasoning behind the duty given in those cases. And crucially, the Court of Appeal found that the line of reasoning in the authorities, it said, didn't depend on whether or not the instruction was being given by an agent of the customer. So in terms of whether the Quince Care duty arose on the facts of the present case... The Court of Appeal said that this was a question to be determined at trial, but confirmed that this is at least possible in principle. So on that basis, 
Um, the Court of Appeal said that the summary judgment granted by the High Court in favour of the bank was wrongly entered and should be set aside. And the case is now going to be remitted back to the High Court to proceed to trial. Well, clearly this raises important questions for banks, as the parameters of the Quinscare duty seem to have been extended in comparison with previous cases. Yes, indeed. Without the need for this crucial agency relationship, there is a real risk that the duty could, in principle, apply to a wider range of payment processing scenarios with repercussions that reach beyond the uh, APP fraud context. So we'll be tracking Philip to see if it is appealed to the Supreme Court and obviously report on any other Quince Care developments as and when they emerge. For now, watch this space. And if you would like any further details on the Court of Appeals judgment, please do check out our blog post. There is a link in the show notes. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. <clears throat> it does seem that the Japanese knotweed analogy um, has always been associated with my next topic, but it might be spreading across to the uh, Quince Care duty. That's a great segue, John. Why, thank you. And possibly a perennial weed is in keeping with our springtime theme too. If you haven't guessed it already, the focus of my next update will be the reflective loss principle. And I'll be taking you through the recent uh, judgment in the Alliance and Barclays case, which has clarified an inconsistency in the law relating to reflective loss. I, I should note that a lot of uh, reporting in the Alliance case is focused on the availability of pass-on defences, in the context of claims uh, for um, anti-competitive um, conduct. But I'll be looking at what the case tells us about the development of reflective loss uh, principle more generally. So taking a step back, as we know, the Supreme Court's decision in Sevilla and Marex confirmed that shareholders cannot bring claims based on the fallen value of their shares when that loss is really sustained by the company itself and the company has the same claim. And this is often referred to as the reflective loss principle. So watching the post-Marex case law unfold, I think has been really interesting. Um, A number of cases involving the reflective loss principle stayed pending the Supreme Court's decision in that case. And so we're now seeing the court deal with all of those matters and refining the principle in the process. That's absolutely right. And the recent run of authorities uh, I'll be considering is part of that trend. So the key question uh, before the court in these cases was when in time the reflective loss rule falls to be assessed, uh, with the court unfortunately reaching conflicting conclusions in different cases. And the timing matters because if you assess the reflective loss rule at the time when the claim is made, then a shareholder could simply sell their shareholding before the bringing the action uh, in order to sidestep the reflective loss rule. My gut reaction is that must be the wrong answer. Isn't the better time to assess the rule when the loss is suffered? Uh, funny you say that. <clears throat> and I agree entirely. But last year in uh, Nectrus and UCP, a single Court of Appeal judge on a leave to appeal application held that the claim of an ex-shareholder was not barred by the reflective loss principle because the rule should be assessed at the time the claim was made. But only a few months later, the Privy Council reached a different view in Primeo Fund and Bank of Bermuda, concluding that Nectris was wrongly decided and confirmed that the rule should be assessed at the point in time when a claimant suffers the loss. But being a Privy Council decision, this was merely persuasive guidance rather than binding authority. This was made all the more confusing when a subsequent High Court judge found that they were bound to follow Nectris on this question, but then distinguished it on the facts. But thankfully, this issue has now been resolved. And in Alliance, the Court of Appeal 
found that the reflective loss principle must be assessed at the time when the shareholder suffers the loss, i.e. when the value of the shareholding is diminished by reason of the damage to the company. So you might say the Court of Appeal gave up Nectris for Lent. Very nice. Uh, that's right. Uh, Primeo has won out, and I think this is an important one uh, for our podcasters to be aware of, uh, because the reflective loss rule can be relied on by financial institutions facing duplicate claims uh, made by both the corporate customer and obviously the corporate's shareholders. And this scenario does crop up, uh, particularly in uh, mis-selling claims. So we keep a close eye on this area of the law. So hopping swiftly on, we now have a quickfire round where Wilkie and I will be going head to head, uh, or ear to ear, uh, with two cases, each on procedural issues, and then we'll stop rabbiting on. Wilkie, uh, would you like to go first? Certainly. Thanks, John. First up, I have Greencastle and Payne, the most recent in a blooming line of decisions applying the new practice direction 57AC concerning the requirements for trial witness statements. Having found that the witness statements contain speculation on matters outside the witness's knowledge, set out mere commentary on documents disclosed by the defendant and sought to argue the case, the court took a fairly hardline approach to remedying the statements. It withdrew permission for the existing statement and gave the claimant just under a week to redraft the evidence in accordance with PD 57AC. The court commented that this was the clearest case of failure to comply with PD 57AC since it came into force in April last year, and it's a stark reminder for parties to take compliance with the new practice direction seriously. Secondly, I have the case of Sakab Saudi Holding and Al-Jabri. We don't have time to go into the facts of the underlying claim, except to say it involved allegations of fraud perpetrated by a former Saudi Arabian minister who subsequently fled to Canada. In a nutshell... Eggshell, perhaps. Very good, John. In an eggshell, the applicants issued proceedings in Canada and subsequently applied under the Evidence Proceedings and Other Jurisdictions Act of 1975 and CPR 3417 to give effect to the letter of request issued by the Canadian court. The letter of request sought the production of documents from a number of banks for use in the Canadian civil proceedings. The English court granted the request. The court emphasised that English courts would normally be inclined to accede to letters of request issued by foreign courts, if they can do so. However, a balance has to be struck between the legitimate requirements of foreign courts and the burden imposed on witnesses. It may be that the letter of request is irrelevant, or fishing, or speculative, in which case the English court can refuse it. None of this is new legal ground. However, the case is a good demonstration of the application of established principles concerning letters of request. If any listeners are faced with an application of this kind, please do have a look at our blog post in which we go into detail on the legal principles. As always, there is a link in the show notes. John, I think I'm handing back over to you now. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Wilkie. And just a quick pair of cases from me. Uh, so the first up is Broad Idea International and Convoy Collateral. And this was, in the very words of the Master of the Rolls, a groundbreaking exposition of the law of injunctions by the Privy Council. Although the analysis is technically obiter, it's likely to be highly influential. And if you're involved in a, a Mareva injunction, a freezing injunction, we would highly recommend that you read the blog post in this decision. Showing your age there, John Mareva. Don't think we're allowed to say that anymore. I think we are 1975, isn't it, the case? Very good, John. What's the citation? Uh, it's an appeal case decision. I can't give you the page, but I'll do that on the next episode, Kerry. Um, but uh, known uh, informally as a Mareva injunction, now just as a freezing injunction, if you are faced with one of those, then please do consult the show notes. 
Uh, and lastly, a word of warning from the court in Guardian News and Rosanov, uh, which highlights the risks for banks and indeed uh, other corporates of journalists obtaining court documents, particularly in employment disputes involving commercially sensitive allegations made by disgruntled former employees. In this particular uh, case, the Employment Appeals Tribunal ordered a bank that had previously uh, successfully defended dismissal proceedings brought by a former employee to provide copies of certain documents put before the tribunal to a Guardian journalist who had not been present at the hearing. And the case is a salutary reminder of the broad scope of the court's discretion to grant non-party access to court documents and how the ease of producing electronic documents may have an impact on the court's response uh, to such applications. And once again, we have a link uh, to the blog post in the show notes. Okay, well, thank you, uh, podcasters, uh, for joining us on this beautiful uh, grey spring morning. And thank you, Wilkie, uh, our guest, for joining us. Uh, just before James gets his xylophone out to play us out, did I see, Kerry, your face appearing on a banking publication this week in my inbox? Very literally appearing on your public mm. publication. Would you yeah. like to plug it while you have a minute? Uh, yeah, so please do check out our banking litigation update, um, which we produce tw- twice a year. This is the April edition, um, and uh, it summarises all of the key developments over the past six months. So if you want a one-stop shop to get up to speed, then um, I would suggest you have a quick read or just watch the video, which I think is about eight minutes. It'll give you an overview. Well, indeed. Um, But that doesn't mean you should stop listening to this podcast, podcasters. So until we speak again, stay safe and very best wishes from us.